This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. There were seven shootings in Toronto in the last 24 hours. Two of them were fatal, and that brings the number of homicides for the year to 95. 95. That is a record. Then there's the question of where these crimes occurred. Two of the victims were hit in the entertainment district, which is, frankly, often the scene of violence. But there was also a shooting in broad daylight at Bathurst and St. Clair. So what's behind this spike? Throughout the year, we've heard from people who downplay it, citing everything from the van attack, which claimed 10 lives in one incident, to the fact that our population has grown, and that makes this number less alarming on a per capita basis. What do you think? Do you feel that the city is less safe? Do you feel that we have adequate policing? I'd like to hear from you. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, we go to Ross McLean, a crime and security expert, and Mike McCormick, president of the Toronto Police Association. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to be here, Libby. Okay. Ross, let's start with you. Uh, to what do you attribute this big number? Uh, this big number is a result of what's been coming since about 2013. I think what we've really seen, uh, Libby, is a structural change that's been put in place by the past governments. Everything from the laws um, around carding uh, to the laws of the Supreme Court decision about no minimum penalties for carrying a handgun to as much as recently as we're seeing a human rights report come out uh, claiming that there's racism. We've had the, the protesters busting up police board meetings, which has resulted in no carding going on. And the, the most terrible thing I see here, Libby, is all these groups that are, that are saying they're protecting people, I think are actually endangering people. We've seen these shooting rates climb, climb, and climb for the last five, six years. Mike McCormick, uh, I know that uh, you are not a fan of carding. So, what do you say to Ross? Well, again, I'm not a fan of. uh, It's not that I'm not a fan of carding, but you know, uh, we've had this discussion, we've had this debate around street checks. Um, I know that Justice Tullock is in the process of defining what a street check is and how to do it in a legal, lawful, uh, respectful way. But again, you know, we, we've had the discussion uh, as far as a police service about the value of street checks. The community has said, look, you know, uh, it, the uh, issues around erosion to the, the relationship between the police and the community is outweighed by the value of street checks. So it, it goes way beyond street checks. And, and, uh, and you know, I, I agree with what Ross is saying, that, that the terms of reference and the way we police has changed dramatically. And that is a definite impact. But, uh, you know, my thing is that how we engage, and the bottom line is we don't. 
So what I mean by that is that there is no proactive policing component in what we do. We are in a reactive mode when we're down 800 police officers, when we're often putting out five or six police officers for the entire downtown court, we're seeing more people carrying guns. So what's happening is more people are carrying guns. They're more apt to use them when they confront somebody else. So when you talk about, Libby, you start, started beginning seeing at the entertainment district, you're not surprised. Nobody's surprised because groups, you know, go down, gangs, they all show up at the same place. They're all carrying. And lo and behold, to nobody, you should be to nobody's surprise, they pull out their guns and start shooting each other. So, I mean, we, we don't have the, the bottom line, we don't have the police resources to police effectively in the city right now. And that is the huge concern. Okay. Uh, Let me, let me uh, backtrack a bit. Is, is there some kind of particular gang war on at the moment? We know a lot of this is gang related violence. Right. Right. And and again, I'm not going to get into specific investigations or intelligence, but there's all there. What we have seen and to Ross's point, he is a hundred percent correct. Since 2014, we have seen a dramatic, so this is not a blip, this is not a spike, this is a trend. And we have seen a steady increase in shooting. So yes, there is always gang activity going on in a city like Toronto. But what's happening is that it's more brazen, it's more public, because these people who are involved in gang activity and gang shootings, like I said, they're carrying guns because they don't care. They're not going to get stopped by the cops. They're going to do go out and do that, and we don't have the resources to police effectively and, and maintain safe communities. And that's what you're seeing: 565 people in the city of Toronto shooting victims. I don't care what anybody says. Well, comparing to the states, or oh, look at population growth, that is unacceptable. 95 homicides, unacceptable. Uh, Ross, uh, what do you know about any kind of gang war, particularly escalated gang war, that may be going on right now? Well, well, gang war is a bit broad for it. What it is is you've got a huge increase in uh, in drug sales, particularly these street sales, opioids and whatnot, the fentanyl. We're seeing the deaths that also come from that, that I think, quite frankly, should also be attributed to the homicide rate or the death rate, the, the fentanyl and the drugs that are going out that are killing people. Because you've got these gangsters that can get set up, uh, their own little small franchise, a pill press, some fentanyl, uh, and some drugs, and they can sell a pill that they get for a buck for 30 or 40 bucks on the street. They're making a ton of money off of this. With that money, they're buying guns. With the guns, they're enforcing their territory and, and laying out their beefs, and you get this mindless type of shooting. And not just mindless type of shooting. Let's look at the victims we're seeing here. We've seen children shot in playgrounds, little girls' sisters shot in playgrounds. Yes. We've seen a pregnant woman shot. We've seen her fetus counted as one of the, one of the deaths she was about to give birth. We've seen an innocent man gunned down out in, uh, from, he was from Nigeria, who had nothing to do with the gangs. Two guys followed him, walked up behind him and shot him in the head. Not unlike what happened down, and I understand the shooting downtown, uh, last night was someone else who was shot in the head. So here you've got gangsters who practice the idea of having a gun and putting it to the back of someone's head and pulling the trigger. This, this, these shootings are, are the most cold-blooded killings I think uh, I, I've certainly ever heard of. Exactly. And, and, and let me, you know, to Ross's point, so when you're asking, there is always, we have many gangs in the city of Toronto. What's happening is that one, they get involved in a beef or whatever, there's a shooting, there's a retaliation, and what we would do in the past when we had the intelligence and we were able to get out there and do that and look at it and, and anticipate some of these things in a proactive stance, 
community police officers and stuff like that, where we had a proactive component, high visibility of police officers, we were able to avoid a lot of this. We were able to be proactive, and that's exactly what proactive means, proactive about stopping this before it happens. We don't have that capacity. So Ross is 100%. We've got all proliferation of guns, proliferation of drugs, and and an attitude like and and this is everybody in the city should be alarmed about this because we're seeing it happen in bars, in malls, in in entertainment district, and this is the reality. They're carrying guns. They don't give a damn about anybody else. And when they see each other, they'll take out the guns and use them. If they're afraid to carry guns, that they're going to get stopped by the police, that they're going to be down with these guns, then they're not going to be carrying them, and they're going to run into each other. And we're not going to have these types of shootings. But unfortunately, we have. And I talked to our people in intelligence and guns and gangs, frontline police officers. We are so frustrated as a policing community in Toronto. This is an insult to policing. It's an insult to public safety and the public in general. We're very concerned about it. Okay, well, what could we do short of carding uh, to be able to stop uh, people who are carrying guns illegally? Ross? Right. And, and it, oh, sorry. Well, there's there's a number of things we can do. Number one, we can we can reinstate the minimum of uh, three or five years in jail if you're caught with uh, with a handgun, an illegal handgun. The minimums for it. Reintroduce that uh, in, into uh, into law. We need our politicians to deal more with our activist judges who feel who feel that they can turn around and say, oh, they they made up a story about the last time the minimum was brought in. But what if a legal gun owner accidentally put his gun in his trunk and we stopped him? Then he'd have to go to jail for three years. Of course, no one would prosecute for that, but they use that to throw out the most effective law that the police had. So you need to deal with the law. We need to deal with our community uh, uh, policing regulations that are brought in by the ministry. Now we've got a new guy uh, working in there, Super Mario Di Tommaso, who came from the Toronto Police, who understands crimes and guns and what needs to be done. So hopefully we can start getting the police back to doing policing and not on their heels. Uh, listen, I, Mike can't really say this, but I will say this, and it's not a case of Fido for the cops today. We're forget about it and drive on. They've all said to me, I've asked them for the last four years about this, what do you think about the carding and doing stuff? And they all say to me, they say, Ross, this is the type of policing we've been told we have to deliver, so this is the type of policing we will deliver. They're doing what they're told to do and what the regulations allow them to do. But I will tell you, the, the cops that I know that are in the business, they're not there to go just put chalk outlines around bodies. They want to go there and bust these bad guys and get them out of our communities. But that's not the policing that they're allowed to do anymore. And, uh, Mike, I know you have to go soon, but, but short of putting a lot more cops on the street, and we know that's, that's what you're looking for, uh, what do you think could deal with this uh, in terms of policing in a different way? Yeah, first of all, I can stick around up, up for a few more minutes, but it, this is a really important issue, um, and, and I think it deserves the time that you're giving it. So, uh, you know, this isn't about me saying, oh, we want more police officers on the street. What I'm telling you right now is we do not have sufficient police officers to police in a proactive community-based policing. So the answer, there's a, this is a very complicated problem lots of aspects around policing is one of the things that are is going to be the fix around this there needs to be community involvement there needs to be opportunity there needs to be some very strong social programs to give people opportunity those are great long-term fixes but what we 
done over the last four years, and when, when Ross is quoting the stats, it's not that our officers, uh, you know, are, don't have the tools. They don't have the capacity to go out there. So when I look at the stats overall and I look at 250,000 fewer provincial offense tickets, 27,000 less arrests a year, um, the only jurisdiction in Ontario that's had a decline in impaired driving charges, that's because our officers are not pulling people over, not investigating, not arresting, because they're going from call to call. So as long as we're in this restricted, as, as Ross called it, capacity to police, all of the stuff that is a benefit of proactive policing, we're not going to see. And that's what we're seeing. People carrying guns. Take a drive through the city, Libby, and tell me when you see a police car as opposed to 10 years ago. Very rarely do you see a police car because they're going from call to call. So I'm not going I, all... I like see it. at least uh, like three, four or five of them in a 15-minute drive to work. Well, you know what? You, you're lucky because I'm driving through the city right now and I'm on my hands free just so everybody knows. But, um, you know, I haven't seen a police car. And I know for a fact our numbers are down when we're putting out four or five police officers. So, you know, whatever time you're driving to work, you might see that. But I'm telling you right now, in general, I've not had any person come up to me and say, wow, Mike, we see the same amount of police officers. The numbers speak to itself. So if I'm writing 257,000 less provincial offense tickets, that means I'm stopping people less. That means I'm investigating people less. And that's what's happening. That capacity is so diminished. It's resulting in a huge increase of violence. And we have been saying this. I know that Ross has been saying it. The association has been saying it for years. This is coming. And here we are. But if you're, all, let, let me just ask you this oh. as as a, a final um, question. But uh, if if the law prevents you from doing this, how would having more officers uh, work? The, the law does not prevent me from going out and having community engagement and getting out and talking to the people in the community. And that's what Justin Tullock is going to do. He's going to outline what the legal responsibilities are. But if I, what good is saying we can go out and record information or take information down if we don't have the people to do it? So we you know, Libby, Libby, do there was, it, let me just jump useless. in for a second here. I know Mike can't speak to a specific case. There was a murder this summer took place out in the, the West End. Uh, a homeless guy was beaten to death. Calls came in to 911. Yes. Guess what? The police didn't get there. They couldn't get yep. an officer there for 45 minutes. The, exactly. body was take, the guy was taken to the hospital, pronounced in the hospital before they could get there. They had nobody to respond. I, 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 I remember that. But what I'm asking is, you know, Ross, you've been pointing out that changes in the law prevent people from who are carrying, they, they carry guns with impunity. So I'm saying that given that that's the state of the law, how would having more officers help yep. deal with can, that? Can I, can I answer that? Let me ask sure. that question. So what? So they said, okay, you can't do this street checks in the way we did street checks. That's fine. But what? So the answer is you have to have officers embedded in the community that do community-based policing that can engage members of the community, gather intelligence, build the relationships, understand what's going on in that community. So that's the tool that replaces what uh, uh, street checks or carding was. Uh, and again, you know, it's what you define carding as. But you, it, the real answer, I've worked in Regent Park. I've worked in, uh, you know, uh, communities that have challenges. And I know firsthand the value of community-based policing officers, the value of having people. But nobody wants to talk about giving us the resources to do it. So you want us to do it. You want us to get the intel make the commitment, have the officers required. And that's how you do it. And I'm talking not from a 10,000-foot level, but somebody who's on the ground, who has done the job, 
and has worked in this type of these type of issues of shootings, um, violence uh, of this magnitude, you have to have the officers on the ground, getting the intelligence, doing the work, and uh, working with the communities. It's it's a multi pronged uh, approach. We need the officers to do it. Somebody get off their ass and make that commitment. Okay, uh, Mike McCormick, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, and I hope uh, 2019 is a better year, but I'm not looking uh, too optimistic right now. Okay. Um, Ross, hang on. Uh, We are going to take a couple of calls, and uh, we will go to Robin in Orangeville. Hi, Robin. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. (laughs) Okay. As I'm I'm waiting here on the phone, my blood pressure is just boiling over. I... (laughs) I'm a, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I pay taxes. I live an honest life, but yet I can't be protected by the police because why? Their hands are tied. This really burns me up. This, I, this really hits home with me. Now, I have a daughter that goes to university in Toronto. This could be anywhere in, in the world, but she goes to school in Toronto. She's not protected. Why? Because the government their handcuffs on these police officers. I think it is just ridiculous what has gone on with our government. We need to bring back Harding. Now, yesterday we passed a law. You can pull over in a ride check. You can have your, you can be checked for uh, your blood level, whatever it is, however you check, you can blow into this thing. What's the difference? You blowing into that and you being stopped on the street. What is the difference? I don't see a difference. What? Because Maybe you're red, you're white, you're black, you're green, whatever the color is, this is the problem. We have to get over this. We have to bring back Harding. We have to keep our citizens safe on the street. Okay, Robin, I get your drift. Thanks for your call. Uh, Right now, uh, we're going to bring in Ari Goldkind, who is a defense lawyer. And uh, Ari, we've been talking to Mike McCormick, so he says uh, basically the answer is more police officers to do more proactive policing, even though uh, the fact is that you can't just uh, stop somebody and check them for a gun at this point. So what do you think, from your point of view as a defense attorney, like what, what's going on here? Good afternoon, Libby. Well, Good afternoon. All, as a defense lawyer, I don't take and share the view that many defense lawyers have that police are the enemy. As long as from a defense lawyer point of view, you're pulling somebody over or stopping them or chatting with them for a bona fide purpose, that you don't have hate in your heart, you're not looking to arrest people willy-nilly. I just think police officers have very good instincts as to who they should speak to and who they don't. And the trouble that I see, Libby, and I'm exiting my criminal defense lawyer sacrosanct position here and just speaking like somebody who lives in Toronto, is I think we've really lost the narrative here where somehow the narrative has been hijacked that police are the enemy and that police are the culprit and police are the ones always at fault. Rather... And the people, and I deal with this every day. They are my clients. I defend them vigorously. I will not stop doing that. But we need to stop with this idea that all of the attention has to be what the police do or do not do versus the scourge of guns. And the other part of the narrative, Libby, that I don't think it's aired enough is when you hear the anti-police voices every day, it's almost always the same or similar voices. But in my travels throughout the city, both legally and politically, I don't think that the communities that are most affected by gun violence, 
that are most affected by drugs, drugs and crime. They're not anti-police. They do not want less police officers there. So I really just think the conversation has to be refocused out of the politically correct spectrum that it's in and really understand that police are here to serve and protect all of us. And that includes, by the way, minority and racialized communities. Yeah, okay. So I'm I'm looking at our our screens, and we are going to get to more of our listeners' calls. And, and, you know, everybody, not everybody, most everybody is saying we need carding to come back, and that's going to be the solution. We've had Mike McCormick on many occasions on this program telling us that ship has sailed. Carding is not coming back. Uh, the answer is is more police. Uh, but on the other hand, the police are lim- limited in, in, in what they can do. So I kind of see uh, an, an impasse here. I, I know I've, I've been repeating this, but, you know, and again, um, to say that, that carding is kind of the magic bullet, pardon that bad pun, pun um, I think it's a bit simplistic. Ross? Uh, Libby, you, you actually just heard Mike McCormick say what I told you every police officer is saying. When Mike says, that ship has sailed, it's not coming back. What he's saying is you've changed the law. This is what you've done. We're going to have to live with it. We're gonna have, we don't like it. Uh, there isn't a cop around who will tell you that they didn't use intelligence-based uh, policing to go, to go bust these really bad guys. And, and look, there's been a... There's some cases that I know about that I can't really talk about because of the intelligence around them, where the police are still using certain levels of intelligence to crack cases, but they don't have it the way they used to before. And I think that, you know, one thing that Ari, I think, is pointing out here, and I want to give him credit for saying this, he's speaking as a citizen and as a lawyer and as a person who is saying he respects the police, he's got no problem, even if it's a great cop, if Ron Tavner himself was up on the stand and Ari was, he was on one of Ari's clients, he'd ask him real hard questions. He'd make, he'd make him prove that he did the job right and he did it well. That's what he'll do. And uh, we route out anything that's bad, any, any uh, police abuse, but the cops are not the enemy. And when I go around the city, I hear people talking about that. They like the cops. They want more of the cops in, 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 in these bad areas. Uh, let, me, let me, can yeah, I add something should, to that? Please. If I may, it's going to be very quick. One of the things that bothers me, and again, I'm sort of on the outs uh, on these issues with some of my colleagues who obviously we all make a living defending these kinds of crimes, but it doesn't mean I take off a certain part of my hat. The criminal courts are all about a search for truth. You've heard that phrase. You can watch any Netflix, uh, HBO show. Cross-examination, asking questions, reading is about the search for truth. When we don't tell the truth in this city, about what's going on, how to solve it, the real issues that we face. I think that is the very thing that prevents solutions. I don't think, and I see the world's Mike McCormick way, I understand his point, he represents the union. I don't think this is an issue of hiring a 1,000 new police officers. I think this is allowing the talented police officers who know and understand where there is trouble, who know and understand who to speak to. It's allowing them to do their job without the narrative, which is written by a very, very small number of very loud people. That narrative is not the thing that should carry the day. What should carry the day is the views of Torontonians who simply want to walk down the street and be unfettered and unaffected by guns and drugs, and particularly people, Libby, who we don't talk about enough, who are in Toronto community housing 
And the police have also had to be handcuffed on that. And if you're a poor person and don't live the way uh, you do, Libby, and I do, and Ross does, and you have to live there because your life circumstances are unlucky, you should not be susceptible to the violence and drugs and guns there. And in my view, the police are there to assist, not to hurt. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the hopeful thing. Um, uh, Ari, just before we uh, let you go, do you think that this requires a change in the law or just a change in practice? I would say, Libby, to give you a much shorter answer that isn't glib, I think it requires a change of culture, not the law. I think we need to look at who is running the city, who is running the province, who is running the country, and getting them to get in the room and have the same conversation about crime and who commits crime and why crime is committed, that most of us sensible, not hateful, not racist, not anything that ends in is people have and we're sitting around our dinner table. And when that conversation can happen, Libby, we can actually make some changes that benefit the citizens of this city and this province and isn't about burying our heads in the sand. Okay, Ari, we're going to let you go. Ross, please hang on. Thanks, Ari, for joining us. Thank you, Libby. Okay, uh, we're going to take a call from Dorothy in Toronto. And Dorothy, you have a very good question. Well, I do. I, I don't know what the big thing is, why they can't get these guns off the street and make them illegal. And also, if our politicians would get things in the recreation centers after school like we had years ago, where they young people could do things like take karate and they could do all kinds of things and learn things that they weren't bored and out. The government just cut a bunch of that on Friday. Pardon me? I said the government just cut some of that on Friday. Cut it? You mean cut the money off? Uh, Yeah, for the school boards, for some of the uh, special help and extracurricular. Oh, well, this is what the problem is. The little kids are so bored, and they get out on the street and get into drugs and guns way too early, and by nipping it in the bud, that would be the way to do it. Not when they're already out in the street. You can't even go out to a little places in the summer. There's guns. People are being shot right at the next table. It's it's gone too far, and surely they could do something about it with, with carding and stopping selling all the guns. They could stop this. This is ridiculous. The police, what the police have to go through, and regular citizens like myself, you're afraid to go out. Are you afraid to go out, Dorothy? Uh, no, I'm not afraid of anything. Okay, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm an older person, too, and I pray every day, and I've strong belief in God, but a lot of people don't, and they're afraid. And our police could help them more if our government, the politicians, you know, and the lawyers and the judges would to get together more helping the police instead of having it like a big thing against the police, a big war, like they're higher up and the police are down here. But the police are working with the people, and they're just as great law people as lawyers or judges. Perhaps some of them are even better. Okay, Dorothy, thank you for that. Thank you, Libby. Okay. Bye, dear. Bye-bye. And uh, Dorothy had an interesting question that she didn't get to, and it's, why are these guns so easy to get, Ross? Well, someone's figured out a way to game the system now with all the cross-border traffic we have. What we're seeing is uh, when the police, you see the special projects are just getting the tip of the iceberg, uh, they'll be grabbing 60 and 40 guns at a time with these gun runners. And, you know, part of the issue is certainly some of them are coming across 
through the uh, our, our Aboriginal borders with the U.S., where there's no security checks and whatnot. That's certainly one of the ways. There's there's other ways too that these guns are getting in. Someone's figured out how to game the system, and uh, we're get, we're just seeing so many of them now. It's unbelievable. Well, what do you mean, like what? I mean, we did see a couple of uh, big busts where a lot of guns were discovered recently. Yeah, no, we're getting the bus, but there, it, it takes the projects that it takes. It takes like sometimes eight, ten months from the inception, and even longer for some of these projects to go get those sixty guns. Uh, we're seeing guns being taken off the street just about every day. As a matter of fact, I think guns are taken off the street just about every day in Toronto. The problem is they're getting in here, and not only are they getting in here, but you can carry them with a very little chance of being caught, and you can use them as we're seeing that they're even being at used. the border. Well, look, there's different ways. You used to have issues with there's a there's a huge uh, Somali community that's down in Saint Saint Louis, and they used to travel between uh, the criminal side of it. I'm not blaming every Somali, of course not. There's there's some great people there, but there are some Somali gangs, and we've seen certainly that impact our homicide rate here in the last five six years. But what they'll do is people will come up from St. Louis across the border here into Edmonton, into Calgary. You'll see things where they'll have uh, women will come across and they'll hide the uh, the guns in with their babies and all sorts of things. So there's ways of bringing it across, and someone's figured out a way to get a lot of them in these days, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And they were, the, the ones that were discovered recently somewhere in Niagara, they were hidden somewhere in a car? Yeah, there was one that came across where they put them inside of a gas tank of a right. car. It's, they are so sophisticated at hiding uh, guns and drugs. There's a whole law against it for these uh, car auto body places uh, where if you're caught building some of these little traps into cars, like they're, they're unbelievable how complicated they are, Libby. And they're, they're, <laughs> they're very, very hard to crack. Okay. Let's uh, let's take a call from Bob in Etobicoke. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Listen to this program. Uh, obviously, and I've known for a long time, that the police know who carry the guns. But what gets me is once you drive a car and you get a driving license, you have left yourself open to search and seizure of your vehicle for not for drugs but for alcohol and, and um, drugs, so you have to be impaired. <clears throat> and it's because you're, uh, you're a driver. And if you weren't, you, they, they couldn't stop you. But anyway, the point is this. When you enter the city of Toronto, the city should make it that anybody that <clears throat> in the city, uh, if they're carrying on a, a firearm, they have to have a permit for it. I don't have a problem with people carrying guns if they got a permit. Like, you know, I know people who live in Michigan, they wouldn't go out the door without a gun in their pocket to protect themselves. But... We have other problems here because we cannot put out statistics. Like if we, if the carting was done, which I agree it should be done again, because I've been carted, not carted, but stopped several times by the cop when I live in Quebec. And I've never had a problem with that. I feel secure. So if I'm walking down the street in Toronto and some cop stops me and asks me when I'm a Christian, want to know if I have a firearm, I don't have a problem with that. But I would be, I'd be comfortable because I think, okay, the guy coming the other way, they're going to ask him too. So he shouldn't have a gun either. So <clears throat> I feel more comfortable. The other thing is to, we should be releasing statistics. Now, they complain that they say, well, they pick on blacks, they pick on blacks more than they pick on whites. Well, would you want to bother carding 
Well, uh, just a minute. You mean statistics that no. that break this down by race? Yeah. Well, no. Put out the statistics. Put of out statistics the of statistics of what? Of what? How many people are arrested and known to be caught with guns, firearms, and knives, or dealing drugs? Put out the statistics so that we know that apparently some politician in one of the American cities, big city, got in trouble for doing that. Okay, so I'm they, not sure that we, if we do or don't do that. Bob, thanks, thanks for your call. Yeah. Uh, Ross, is, was that, would that be useful? Look, the statistics, the way they're done now, are just an absolute joke. The, the original carding report that was done by the Stars so long ago that everybody jumped on to say that the police were racist, it wouldn't stand up to a first-year student's statistical analysis for the way it was done. It even has those cautions on the start of their study. You just saw the human rights uh, uh, report that was put out. That was just an unbelievable, uh, to me, just an unbelievably uh, ridiculous, out-of-context document. I mean, they, they recorded, now I, I didn't get a chance to go through it all specifically, but they listed how many uh, black people were shot and killed by the police, and therefore it must somehow be something terrible. Well, as I recall, certainly at least one of the killings that was done by the police was a guy who did a double homicide downtown uh, on the Queen's Key that the police were chasing for a week. They ran into him in the entertainment district. He fired at the police first, and the police fired and killed him. So he was recorded as, a, I guess, a case of racism where the police are shooting uh, black people. It's not, criminality is the issue, not skin color. Okay, and, well... You know, that whole report did not address the issue of criminality. It addressed the issue of skin color. And you cannot do, solve a complex problem uh, with uh, multifaceted issues by looking at only one factor. Okay. Uh, lots to talk about. I'm sure that this will not be the last time we tackle this subject. Ross McLean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And everybody, be safe and support your law and order politicians is what I can say. Thank okay. You. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. To uh, you as well. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.